Hello and welcome to Leftist Reading, a podcast where I'm a leftist and I read things. We're continuing with The Conquest of Bread, today with just one whole chapter in one go. So, let's get started on it. Chapter 11. Free Agreement. Section 1. Accustomed as we are by heredity prejudices and our unsound education and training to represent ourselves the beneficial hand of government, legislation, and magistracy everywhere, we have come to believe that man would tear his fellow man to pieces like a wild beast the day the police took his eye off him, that absolute chaos would come about if authority were overthrown during a revolution, and with our eyes shut, we pass by thousands and thousands of human groupings which form themselves freely, without any intervention of the law, and attain results infinitely superior to those achieved under governmental tutelage. If you open a daily paper, you find that its pages are entirely devoted to government transactions and to political jobbery. A man from another world, reading it, would believe that, with the exception of the stock exchange transactions, nothing gets done in Europe save by order of some master. You find nothing in the paper about institutions that spring up, grow up, and develop without ministerial prescription. Nothing, or almost nothing. Even where there is a heading, sundry events, fait divers, a favourite column in the French papers, it is because they are connected with the police. A family drama, an act of rebellion, will only be mentioned if the police have appeared on the scene. 350 million Europeans love or hate one another, work or live on their incomes. But, apart from literature, theatre, or sport, their lives remain ignored by newspapers if governments have not intervened in it in some way or another. It is even so with history. We know the least details of the life of a king or of a parliament. All good and bad speeches pronounced by the politicians have been preserved. Speeches that have never had the least influence on the vote of a single member. As an old parliamentarian said, royal visits, the good or bad humour of politicians, their jokes and intrigues are all carefully recorded for posterity. But we have the greatest difficulty to reconstitute a city of the Middle Ages, to understand the mechanism of that immense commerce that was carried on between Hanseatic cities, or to know how the city of Rouen built its cathedral, If a scholar spends his life in studying these questions, his works remain unknown, and parliamentary histories, that is to say, the defective ones, as they only treat of one side of social life, multiply, they are circulated, they are taught in schools. In this way, we do not even perceive the prodigious work, accomplished every day by spontaneous groups of men, which constitutes the chief work of our century. We therefore propose to point out some of these most striking manifestations, and to show how men, as soon as their interests do not absolutely clash, act in concert, harmoniously, and perform collective work of a very complex nature. It is evident that in present society, based on individual property, that is to say, on plunder, and on a narrow-minded and therefore foolish individualism, facts of this kind are necessarily limited. Agreements are not always perfectly free, and often they have a mean, if not execrable, aim. But what concerns us is not to give examples which might be blindly followed, and which, moreover, present society could not possibly give us. What we have to do is to show that, 
In spite of the authoritarian individualism which stifles us, there remains in our life, taken as a whole, a very great part in which we only act by free agreement, and that, therefore, it would be much easier than is usually thought to dispense with government. In support of our view, we have already mentioned railways, and we will now return to them. We know that Europe has a system of railways, over 175,000 miles long, and that on this network you could nowadays travel from north to south, from east to west, from Madrid to Petersburg, and from Calais to Constantinople, without delays, without even changing carriages, when you travel by express. More than that, a parcel deposited at a station will find its addressee anywhere, in Turkey or in Central Asia, without more formality needed for sending it than writing its destination on a bit of paper. This result might have been obtained in two ways, a Napoleon, a Bismarck, or some potentate having conquered Europe, would from Paris, Berlin, or Rome draw a railway map and regulate the hours of the trains. The Russian Tsar Nicholas I dreamt of such a power. When he was shown rough drafts of railways between Moscow and Petersburg, he seized a ruler and drew on the map of Russia a straight line between these two capitals, saying, Here is the plan. And the road was built in a straight line, filling in deep ravines, building bridges of a giddy height, which had to be abandoned a few years later, after the railway had cost 120 to 150,000 pounds per English mile. This is one way, but happily things were managed differently. Railways were constructed piece by piece. The pieces were joined together, and a hundred different companies to whom these pieces belonged gradually came to an understanding concerning the arrival and departure of their trains, and the running of carriages on their rails, from all countries, without unloading merchandise as it passes from one network to another. All this was done by free agreement, by exchange of letters and proposals, and by congresses at which delegates met to discuss well-specified special points, and to come to an agreement about them, but not to make laws. After the congress was over, the delegates returned to their respective companies, not with a law, but with the draft of a contract to be accepted or rejected. Of course, difficulties were met in the way. There were obstinate men who would not be convinced. But a common interest compelled them to agree in the end, without invoking the help of armies against the refractory members. This immense network of railways connected together, and the enormous traffic it has given rise to, no doubt constitutes the most striking trait of the 19th century, and it is the result of free agreement. If somebody had foretold it 80 years ago, our grandfathers would have thought him idiotic or mad. They would have said, Never will you be able to make the shareholders of a hundred companies listen to reason. It is a utopia, a fairy tale. A central government with an iron dictator can alone enforce it. And the most interesting thing in this organization is that there is no European central government of railways. Nothing. No minister of railways, no dictator, not even a continental parliament. Not even a directing committee. Everything is done by free agreement. So we ask the believers in the state, who pretend that we could never do without a central government, were it only for regulating the traffic. We ask them, but how do European railways manage without them? How do they continue to convey millions of travelers and mountains of luggage across a continent? 
if companies owning railways haven't been able to agree, why should railway workers, who would take possession of railways, not agree likewise? And if the Petersburg-Warsaw Company and that of Paris-Belfort can act in harmony without giving themselves the luxury of a common commander, why, in the midst of our societies, consisting of groups of free workers, should we need a government? Section 2. When we endeavour to prove by examples that even today, in spite of the iniquitous organisation of society as a whole, men, provided their interests be not diametrically opposed, agree without the intervention of authority, we do not ignore the objections that will be put forth. All such examples have their defective side, because it is impossible to quote a single organisation exempt from the exploitation of the weak by the strong, the poor by the rich. This is why the statists will not fail to tell us with their wanted logic. You see that the intervention of the state is necessary to put an end to this exploitation. Only they forget the lessons of history. They do not tell us to what extent the state itself has contributed towards the existing order by creating proletarians and delivering them up to exploiters. They forget to prove to us that it is possible to put an end to exploitation while the primal causes, private, capital, and poverty, two-thirds of which are artificially created by the state, continue to exist. When we speak of the accord established among the railway companies, we expect them, the worshippers of the bourgeois state, to say to us, Do you not see how the railway companies oppress and ill-use their employees and the travellers? The only way is that the state should intervene to protect the workers and the public. But have we not said and repeated over and over again that as long as there are capitalists, these abuses of power will be perpetuated? It is precisely the state, the would-be benefactor, that has given to the companies that monopoly and those rights upon us which they possess today. Has it not created concessions, guarantees? Has it not sent its soldiers against railwaymen on strike? And during the first trials, quite lately we saw it still in Russia, has it not extended the privilege of the railway magnates as far as to forbid the press to mention railway accidents, so as not to depreciate the shares it guaranteed? Has it not favoured the monopoly which has anointed the Vanderbilts and the Polyakovs, the directors of the PLM, the CPR, the St. Gothard, the kings of our days? Therefore, if we give as an example the tacit agreement come to between railway companies, it is by no means as an ideal of economical management, nor even an ideal of technical organization. It is to show that if capitalists, without any other aim than that of augmenting their dividends at other people's expense, can exploit railways successfully without establishing an international department, societies of working men will be able to do it just as well, and even better, without nominating a Ministry of European Railways. Another objection is raised that is more serious at first sight. We may be told that the agreement we speak of is not perfectly free, that the large companies lay down the law to the small ones. It might be mentioned, for example, that a certain rich German company, supported by the state, compel travellers who go from Berlin to Bale to pass via Cologne and Frankfurt, instead of taking the Leipzig route or that such a company carries goods 130 miles in a roundabout way on a long distance to favour its influential shareholders, and thus ruins the secondary lines. 
In the United States, travelers in goods are sometimes compelled to travel impossibly circuitous routes so that dollars may flow into the pockets of a Vanderbilt. Our answer will be the same. As long as capital exists, the greater capital will oppress the lesser. But oppression does not result from capital only. It is also owing to the support given them by the state, to monopoly created by the state in their favor, that the large companies oppress the small ones. The early English and French socialists have shown long since how English legislation did all in its power to ruin the small industries, drive the peasant to poverty, and deliver over to wealthy industrial employers battalions of men, compelled to work for no matter what salary. Railway legislation did exactly the same. Strategic lines, subsidized lines, companies which received the international mail monopoly. Everything was brought into play to forward the interests of wealthy financiers. When Rothschild, creditor to all European states, puts capital in a railway, his faithful subjects, the ministers, will do their best to make him earn more. In the United States, in the democracy that authoritarians hold up to us as an ideal, the most scandalous fraudulency has crept into everything that concerns railroads. Thus, if a company ruins its competitors by cheap fares, it is often unable to do so because it is reimbursed by land given to it by the state for a gratuity. Documents recently published concerning the American wheat trade have fully shown up the part played by the state in the exploitation of the weak by the strong. Here, too, the power of accumulated capital has increased tenfold and a hundredfold by means of state help, so that, when we see syndicates of railway companies, a product of free agreement, succeeding in protecting their small companies against big ones, we are astonished at the intrinsic force of free agreement that can hold its own against all-powerful capital favored by the state. It is a fact that little companies exist, in spite of the state's partiality. If in France, land of centralization, we only see five or six large companies, there are more than 110 in Great Britain who agree remarkably well, and who are certainly better organized for the rapid transit of travelers and goods than the French and German companies. Moreover, that is not the question. Large capital, favored by the state, can always, if it be to its advantage, crush the lesser one. What is of importance to us is this. The agreement between hundreds of capitalist companies to whom the railways of Europe belong was established without the intervention of a central government to lay down the law to the diverse societies. It has subsisted by means of congresses composed of delegates who discuss among themselves and submit proposals, not laws, to their constituents. It is a new principle that differs completely from all governmental principle, monarchical or republican, absolute or parliamentarian. It is an innovation that has been timidly introduced into the customs of Europe, but has come to stay. Section 3. How often have we not read in the writings of state-loving socialists? Who then will undertake the regulation of canal traffic in a future society? Should it enter the mind of one of your anarchist comrades to put his barge across a canal and obstruct thousands of boats? Who will force him to reason? Let us confess the supposition to be somewhat fanciful. Still, it might be said, for instance, 
Should a certain commune or group of communes want to make their barges pass before others, they might perhaps block the cow in order to carry stones, while wheat, needed in another commune, would have to stand by. Who then would regulate the traffic if not the government? But real life has demonstrated that government can be very well dispensed with here as elsewhere. Free agreement, free organization, replace that noxious and costly system, and do better. We know what canals mean to Holland. They are its highways. We also know how much traffic there is on the canals. What is carried along our high roads and railroads is transported on canal boats in Holland. There you could find cause to fight, in order to make your boats pass before others. There the government might really interfere to keep the traffic in order. Yet it is not so. The Dutch settled matters in a more practical way, long ago, by founding guilds or syndicates of boatmen. These were free associations sprung from the very needs of navigation. The right of way for the boats was adjusted by the order of inscription in a navigation register. They had to follow one another in turn. Nobody was allowed to get ahead of the others, under pain of being excluded from the guild. None could station more than a certain number of days along the quay, and if the owner found no goods to carry during that time, so much the worse for him. He had to depart with his empty barge to leave room for newcomers. Obstruction was thus avoided. Even though the competition between the private owners of the boats continued to exist, were the latter suppressed, the agreement could have been only the more cordial. It is unnecessary to add that the ship owners could adhere or not to the syndicate. That was their business but most of them elected to join it. Moreover, these syndicates offered such great advantages that they spread also along the Rhine, the Wesser, the Oder, and as far as Berlin. The boatmen did not wait for General Bismarck to annex Holland to Germany and to appoint an Oberhaupt General Staatskanals Navigationrat, Supreme Head Counselor of the General States Canal Navigation, with a number of gold stripes on his sleeves corresponding to the length of the title. They preferred coming to an international understanding. Besides, a number of ship owners, whose sailing vessels ply between Germany and Scandinavia, as well as Russia, have also joined these syndicates. In order to regulate traffic in the Baltic, and to bring a certain harmony in the chasse croise of vessels, these associations have sprung up freely, recruiting volunteer adherents, and have naught in common with governments. It is, however, more than probable that here too greater capital oppresses lesser. Maybe the syndicate has also a tendency to become a monopoly, especially where it receives the precious patronage of the state that surely did not fail to interfere with it. Let us not forget either that these syndicates represent associations whose members have only private interests at stake, and that if at the same time each shipowner were compelled by the socializing of production, consumption, and exchange, to belong to federated communes or to a hundred other associations for the satisfying of his needs, things would have a different aspect. A group of shipowners, powerful on sea, would feel weak on land, and they would be obliged to lessen their claims in order to come to terms with railways, factories, and other groups. At any rate, without discussing the future, here is another spontaneous association that has dispensed with government. Let us quote more examples. As we are talking of ships and boats, 
let us mention one of the most splendid organizations that the 19th century has brought forth, one of those we may with right be proud of, the English Lifeboat Association. It is known that every year more than a thousand ships are wrecked on the shores of England. At sea, a good ship seldom fears a storm. It is near the coasts that danger threatens, rough seas that shatter her stern post, squalls that carry off her masts and sails, currents that render her unmanageable, reefs and sandbanks on which she runs aground. Even in olden times, when it was a custom among inhabitants of the coasts to light fires in order to attract vessels onto reefs, in order to plunder their cargoes, they always strove to save the crew. Seeing a ship in distress, they launched their boats and went to the rescue of shipwrecked sailors, only too often finding a watery grave themselves. Every hamlet along the seashore has its legends of heroism, displayed by woman as well as by man, to save crews in distress. No doubt the state and men of science have done something to diminish the number of casualties. Lighthouses, signals, charts, meteorological warnings have diminished them greatly, but there remains a thousand ships and several thousand human lives to be saved every year. To this end, a few men of goodwill put their shoulders to the wheel. Being good sailors and navigators themselves, they invented a lifeboat that could weather a storm without being torn to pieces or capsizing, and they set to work to interest the public in their venture, to collect the necessary funds for constructing boats and for stationing them along the coasts, wherever they could be of use. These men, not being Jacobins, did not turn to the government. They understood that to bring their enterprise to a successful issue, they must have the cooperation, the enthusiasm, the local knowledge, and especially the self-sacrifice of the local sailors. They also understood that to find men who at the first signal would launch their boat at night, in a chaos of waves, not suffering themselves to be deterred by darkness or breakers, and struggling five, six, ten hours against the tide before reaching a vessel in distress, men ready to risk their lives to save those of others. There must be a feeling of solidarity, a spirit of sacrifice, not to be bought with Galloon. It was therefore a perfectly spontaneous movement, sprung from agreement and individual initiative. Hundreds of local groups arose along the coasts. The initiators had the common sense not to pose as masters, they looked for sagacity in the fishermen's hamlets, and when a rich man sent £1,000 to a village on the coast to erect a lifeboat station, and his offer was accepted, he left the choice of a site to the local fishermen and sailors. Models of new boats were not submitted to the Admiralty. We read in a report of the association, quote, As it is of importance that lifeboatmen should have full confidence in the vessel they man, the committee will make a point of constructing and equipping the boats according to the lifeboatmen's expressed wish. End quote. In consequence, every year brings with it new improvements. The work is wholly conducted by volunteers organizing in committees and local groups, by mutual aid and agreement. Oh, anarchists! Moreover, they ask nothing of the ratepayers, and in a year they may receive £40,000 in spontaneous subscriptions. As to the results, here they are. In 1891, the association possessed 293 lifeboats. The same year, it saved 601 shipwrecked sailors and 33 vessels. Since its foundation, it has saved 32,671 human beings. In 1886, three lifeboats with all their men having perished at sea, 
hundreds of new volunteers entered their names, organized themselves into local groups, and the agitation resulted in the construction of 20 additional boats. As we proceed, let us note that every year the association sends to the fishermen and sailors excellent barometers at a price three times less than their sale price in private shops. It propagates meteorological knowledge and warns the parties concerned of the sudden changes of weather predicted by men of science. Let us repeat that these hundreds of committees and local groups are not organized hierarchically and are composed exclusively of volunteers, lifeboatmen, and people interested in the work. The Central Committee, which is more of a center for correspondence, in no wise interferes. It is true that when a voting on some question of education or local taxation takes place in a district, these committees of the National Lifeboat Association do not, as such, take part in the deliberations. A modesty, which unfortunately the members of elected bodies do not imitate. But, on the other hand, these brave men do not allow those who have never faced the storm to legislate for them about saving life. At the first signal of distress, they rush to their boats and go ahead. There are no embroidered uniforms, but much goodwill. Let us take another society of the same kind, that of the Red Cross. The name matters little. Let us examine it. Imagine somebody saying 50 years ago, quote, The state, capable as it is of massacring 20,000 men in a day and of wounding 50,000 more, is incapable of helping its own victims. Consequently, as long as war exists, private initiative must intervene, and men of goodwill must organize internationally for this humane work. End quote. What mockery would not have met the man who would have dared speak thus? To begin with, he would have been called a utopian, and if that did not silence him, he would have been told, What nonsense! Your volunteers will be found wanting precisely where they are most needed. Your volunteer hospitals will be centralized in a safe place, while everything will be wanting in the ambulances. Utopians like you forget the national rivalries which will cause the poor soldiers to die without any help. Such disheartening remarks would have only been equaled by the number of speakers. Who of us has not heard men hold forth in this strain? Now we know what happened. Red Cross societies organized themselves freely, everywhere, in all countries, in thousands of localities, and when the War of 1870-1871 broke out, the volunteers set to work. Men and women offered their services. Thousands of hospitals and ambulances were organized. Trains were started carrying ambulances, provisions, linen, and medicaments for the wounded. The English committees sent entire convoys of food, clothing, tools, grain to sow, beasts of draft, even steam plows, with their attendants to help in the tillage of departments devastated by the war. Only consult La Croix Rouge by Gustave Monnier, and you will be really struck by the immensity of the work performed. As to the prophets ever ready to deny other men's courage, good sense, and intelligence, and believing themselves to be the only ones capable of ruling the world with a rod, none of their predictions were realized. The devotion of the Red Cross volunteers was beyond all praise. They were only too eager to occupy the most dangerous posts, and whereas the salaried doctors of the Napoleonic state fled with their staff when the Prussians approached, the Red Cross volunteers continued their work under fire, 
enduring the brutalities of Bismarck's and Napoleon's officers, lavishing their care on the wounded of all nationalities, Dutch, Italians, Swede, Belgians, even Japanese and Chinese agreed remarkably well. They distributed their hospitals and their ambulances according to the needs of the occasion. They vied with one another, especially in the hygiene of their hospitals. And there is many a Frenchman who still speaks with deep gratitude of the tender care he received from the Dutch or German volunteers in the Red Cross ambulances. But what is this to an authoritarian? His ideal is the regiment doctor, salaried by the state. What does he care for the Red Cross and its hygienic hospitals, if the nurses be not functionaries? Here is then an organization sprung up but yesterday, and which reckons its members by hundreds of thousands, possesses ambulances, hospital trains, elaborates new processes for treating wounds, and so on, and is due to the spontaneous initiative of a few devoted men. Perhaps we shall be told that the state has something to do with this organization. Yes, states have laid hands on it to seize it. The directing committees are presided over by those whom flunkies call princes of the blood. Emperors and queens lavishly patronize the national committees. But it is not to this patronage that the success of the organization is due. It is to the thousand local committees of each nation, to the activity of individuals, to the devotion of all those who try to help the victims of war. And this devotion would be far greater if the state did not meddle with it. In any case, it was not by the order of an international directing committee that Englishmen and Japanese, Swedes and Chinamen, bestirred themselves to send help to the wounded in 1871. It was not by order of an international ministry that hospitals rose on the invaded territory and that ambulances were carried on to the battlefield. It was by the initiative of volunteers from each country. Once on the spot, they did not get hold of one another by the hair, as was foreseen by the Jacobinists of all nations. They all set to work without distinction of nationality. We may regret that such great efforts should be put to the service of so bad a cause, and we may ask ourselves, like the poet's child, why inflict wounds if you are to heal them afterwards? In striving to destroy the power of capitalist and middle-class authority, we work to put an end to the massacres called wars, and we would far rather see the Red Cross volunteers put forth their activity to bring about, with us, the suppression of war. But we had to mention this immense organization as another illustration of results produced by free agreement and free aid. If we wish to multiply examples taken from the art of exterminating men, we should never end. Suffice to quote the numerous societies to which the German army owes its force, that does not only depend on discipline as is generally believed. I mean the societies whose aim is to propagate military knowledge. At one of the last congresses of the Military Alliance, Kriegerbund, delegates from 2,452 federated societies comprising 151,712 members were present. But there are besides very numerous shooting, military games, strategical games, topographical studies societies. These are the workshops in which the technical knowledge of the German army is developed, not in regimental schools. It is a formidable network of all kinds of societies, including military men and civilians, geographers and gymnasts, sportsmen and technologists, which rise up spontaneously, organize, federate, discuss, and explore the country. 
It is these voluntary and free associations that go to make the real backbone of the German army. Their aim is execrable. It is the maintenance of the empire. But what concerns us is to point out that, in spite of military organization being the great mission of the state, success in this branch is the more certain, the more it is left to the free agreement of groups and to the free initiative of individuals. Even in matters pertaining to war, free agreement is thus appealed to. And to further prove our assertion, let us mention the Volunteer Topographers Corps of Switzerland, who study in detail the mountain passages, the Airplane Corps of France, the 300,000 British Volunteers, the British National Artillery Association, and the Society, now in course of organisation, for the defence of England's coasts, as well as the appeals made to the Commercial Fleet, the Bicyclists Corps, and the new organisations of private motorcars and steam launches. Everywhere the state is abdicating and abandoning its holy functions to private individuals. Everywhere free organisation trespasses on its domain. And yet, the facts we have quoted give us only a glimpse of what free government has in store for us in the future, when there will be no more state. And that concludes our reading for this week. If you have comments, questions, corrections, or suggestions, you can email leftistreading at gmail.com or get the show on Twitter at leftistreading. This show is hosted on the Abnormal Mapping Network. If you go to abnormalmapping.com, you can find it and lots of other leftist podcasts about various topics. The intro and outro music is Decisions by Eric Medias. You can find it and more of his work at soundimage.org. But that's all for this week. Thank you for listening, and keep reading.